You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show... Nature in crisis. A UN report says a million animals and plant species face extinction as human activity threatens Earth's natural life support systems. America says it will deploy an aircraft carrier and bomb a task force to the Middle East after Washington accuses Iran of ramping up tensions in the area. My guests Samira Shakoa and Michael Goldfarb will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... 13 people have been killed and dozens of others injured after Taliban fighters launch an attack on a police station in northern Afghanistan. All that plus, the Sultan of Brunei does a U-turn on enforcing laws making adultery and gay sex punishable with death by stoning. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist Samira Shackle, who writes for publications including The Guardian, The New Statesman and Deutsche Welle, and the journalist and broadcaster Michael Goldfarb. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, a damning United Nations report says that increased human activity is threatening the existence of a million animal and plant species. It goes on to add that nature is being destroyed at a rate 10 to hundreds of times higher than the average over the last 10 million years, and that unless remedial action is taken, humanity faces a future of freshwater shortages and climate instability. Well, the report, compiled over three years by a team of scientists and diplomats, claims that agriculture and fishing are the primary cause of the crisis. Michael, the extraordinary thing about this report is the tone, because it is heavily strident, very fatalistic, something that we don't normally associate with UN documents. Exactly. I mean, it turns out that we are the meteor. We're the, that, that what the meteor did to get rid of the dinosaurs, we may well be doing to ourselves and, and to the planet. Um, it's it's a, a broad report, and, and in fact it's been trailed, that the idea of a million species of flora and fauna disappearing is something that I, has been trailed already. I I really don't know how much... I mean, I guess the, the purpose of the report is to sound an alarm. My problem with it is that the big organizations, the UN and, and various other um, climate groups that you know, they negotiate various treaties and so on, have been sounding warnings for most of my adult life. Mm. Um, and while I'm convinced that younger people get it, we haven't passed that tipping point where the people in charge get it sufficiently to, carrying on using the same verb, get their act together. Mm. You know, this is a problem. But is it different this time around? Because it has joined the dots, certainly not in a way that I am familiar with, because it's looked at the interrelationship between biodiversity, climate and human well-being, the other factors, how it is very circular, whereas normally 
Reports have talked about environmental damage in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, rising sea levels because of melting polar ice caps and um, the dangers to to, um, to wildlife, the polar bears, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the problem is that um, the... The... The fact is that it's all connected, right? The fact is that the scale is enormous. The mm. scale shows how borders mean really nothing. I mean, we're living in a time now where nationalism is reasserting itself in, in geopolitics. And you realize, well, wait a second, no. And what it requires is a global political set of actions to begin. It's not just set targets as the, the Paris Climate Accords, which sort of are in place, but do they work? We don't know. Um, the U.S. pulled out of them mm. under Donald Trump. You know, the U.N. can put this out, but does the U.N. have the power to compel its membership mm. to deal with this in a, in, and start to find practical solutions? No, the U.N. Can, can barely enforce a ceasefire in Syria. It certainly can't take a problem of this scale and say to China, you cannot do this in your development after after centuries and centuries of impoverishment because of all the reasons we know, colonialism and, and so on. Now, in the last 50 years, you have brought 300... People listening need to understand this. In the last 50 years, 300 million people in China, which is just a tiny... Not a tiny minority, but it's a minority of the mm, population. It is substantial. <laughs> ...have become middle class in the sense that I'm middle class and you're middle class. And the population of America is 300 million. So they now have brought 20% mm. of their population, which is 300 million people, to a level of wealth where they want to consume as you and I want to consume. Mm. So, so we may be using an appetite for it. I just do it as, as a matter of course. Yeah, so they, they want the same thing. If it's good enough things. for us, why so, isn't it good enough for so them? So how, how are you going to legislate that? Take another example. I, I know Monocle is popular in Brazil. So Jair Bolsonaro campaigned on eh, enough of this not cutting down the Amazon forest. It is important for our economic development. I'm going to take away these rules mm. that for the last decade or 15 years, we haven't been cutting down the forest at the rate we have. And, and he's not alone in that either, because you, you've I got know. Donald Trump who, who denies climate change. I mean, he, he's cited as some as a climate change denier in chief. As, as far as he's concerned, it's a myth that's been peddled by the Chinese to stunt American industry and and how can you push? I mean, this is a very powerful weapon, which in an ideal world should work to push back against it. But it, I guess that there are those who will say, "Well, it's not working." It doesn't work, and and you know, and but there's the flip side of it, and I, I think when we think about the problem, you know, you can you go back? All right, there's a the Guardian's primary environmental correspondent columnist is a guy named George Mombio. Mm. He's got a huge following globally. Um, my guess is some people listening to the program probably read him, if not in The Guardian. They, they find his work somewhere else. About five, ten years ago, he got up, he, he decided Britain needed to be rewilded. People who've been here know there aren't, you know, there, the forests here don't really qualify as forests, you know. They, they, they aren't very big and they're completely circumscribed. This island used to be one enormous forest and over the period of civiliz you know, civilizing Britain, trees were cut down mm. famously to, to build the Royal Navy in, in the middle of, <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the second millennium. But, you know, 
agriculture cut down trees, exactly what they're doing, by the way, in Brazil with the rainforest, sure. you know, graze cattle, whatever. So he moved out to Wales, which is a beautiful country, but is denuded of forest. And he bought a hilltop because he has a He's got a bit of money. And he decided he would rewild. He would plant saplings. Apparently, his neighbors came to hate them because the only job <laughs> out there is raising sheep. And right. the idea is he, want, he says, no, take it up the ground. Let's take, no, we're going to rewild the island, and this will improve and take us back to where we should be to be in balance with nature. Now, if that's happening in such a local situation as Wales on the island of Britain, uh, modest-sized island off the coast of Europe. Imagine the enormous arguments to be had with the Communist Party in Beijing. But then he's also, the the report is also saying, look, a lot of it boils down to individual behaviour. So, for example, cutting down on our meat consumption, simple follow-through economics, if, if we eat less meat then the actual meat farming doesn't have to be quite so intense. So, But therefore, you you take away the justification of the farming community to churn up all these forests and reclaim the land for grazing, etc. Yeah, we've been through that. And in Indonesia, they, they, there's a halt been called to cutting down palms for palm oil. We were not going to use palm oil to... Um in food manufacture to improve shelf life or to emulsify foods, you know, however it's used. Um, Food science is beyond me. Um, But the other thing that, and again, it comes back to the ins and outs and the ups and downs of this. Um, When we look at the problem, if we ever get around to dealing with it politically, I think people need to stop thinking of human beings as being separate observers of nature. We are of nature. Mm. We are are in many ways like a hive of bees or an anthill. We have greater intellectual capacities. But if you stop for a second, our societies are simply expressions of the physical capacity we have of thinking – And, you know, until people get a grip on being part of nature, as opposed to we are a civilization and outside of it, the the problem will continue to grow. Samira has been listening to this quite intently, and I I really want you to comment on on some of the much broader thrusts that we've been looking at, because, I mean, obviously you're aware that there's a lot of scepticism about this, because whilst it's all very well-intentioned in terms of what the report has highlighted, it's also the the worry that perhaps it, it won't really amount to much because of the divisions in the world between politicians who don't believe in climate change science and those who do. But also as well, I think the thing which leapt out is this idea that if resources become scarce, rather than conflict being generated, if you like, by territorial ambitions, it's going to be generated by concerns about precious resources like water. Mm, Absolutely. I think... um I think, and and to kind of address your point about scepticism first, I think that it's quite notable that this report uh, has involved scientists from so many countries and not just that, but also intergovernmental agreement. And I think to have such a stark warning in a UN report, given the kind of constraints on those types of reports and how many different people and how many different governments need to feed into it, I think that's quite significant. Um, Of course, the kind of wholesale um, overhaul of systems that's needed to to take action and that's called for is a whole other question. But I think that... The hope of the report writers will be that it might have the same kind of impact on changing the discussion as the uh, UN report that came out last year um, around climate change, which said we have 12 years to avert catastrophe, which again was unusually strong language for such a report. And that, I think, uh, has played a really significant part in um, 
in in kind of changing the conversation and, and at least placing that climate change question higher up the political agenda than it has been previously. Of course, again, that wholesale change is, is slow. But I think what the authors of this report will certainly be getting at is the idea that, um, that you know, we don't have... Uh, time to waste kind of debating with sceptics anymore. We need to take action on this mm. stuff now. And as you say, it's feeding into a whole other uh, series of human catastrophes, conflict, water shortages sure. and so on. But the, the idea of people mm. actually fighting over water because water mm. itself is scarce, but also as well, um, we're talking about this now, but do, do either of you feel that perhaps... Uh, this 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 report might not have garnered quite so much attention had it not been for this fortuitous collision of circumstances. In other words, there's a David Attenborough documentary coming after the Extinction Rebellion protests and the, the, the worldwide attention which these drew. Will we be having this conversation at all? Yeah, I, th- I think when the UN comes out with a report of this scale, yes. I mean, UN reports have triggered, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, you know, various attempts to come up with climate targets over the last 20, 25 years. Um, but it is fortuitous. But, uh, you know, just because you bring up Extinction Rebellion, I'm still, you know, I, I my sympathies are with the kids who came out and did it. Um, but, you know, until the people who take to the streets can formulate a set of possible political solutions... They can't stand outside Parliament and basically say, do something. I mean, Parliament can't even negotiate Britain out of the <laughs> European <laughs> Union after three years. It takes, it, you know, it does take, it takes some thought as to what is doable here. And if it's a catastrophe that's unavoidable, if we don't get our act together in a dozen years, that means there has to be some fairly strong political bullet points that can be handed up to the politicians mm. and then you can pressure that's the way it works Mira. i think that's true to an extent although i mean the the kind of rate of change we've seen from from climate change has escalated so dramatically over the 30 last 30 years and you could argue that uh, politicians having as they do the the kind of benefit of not not years and months but decades of of advice from climate scientists and lobbyists and so on uh, I think collectively know exactly what to do, really, and it's maybe not for the kind of 20-something protesters to say, although I do think having a kind of spotlight on this issue is good. Having it higher up the political agenda is obviously good, but that I think there's a big difference between um, attention and the kind of wholesale systemic change we need. Okay, let's move on now to the United States, which is planning to send an aircraft carrier and a bomber task force to the Middle East after it accused Iran of ramping up tensions in the area. The US National Security Advisor John Bolton said the move was in response to, quote, a number of troubling and escalatory indications and warnings from Iran, although he didn't say what they were. Mr Bolton's announcement comes just days after Tehran expressed its concern that US policy hawks could be looking to draw Donald Trump's administration into a war. So, Michael, John Bolton might want a war, but uh, wouldn't Donald Trump himself be reluctant to go down that route since his base certainly wouldn't like it and it might be too high a risk to take as he's gearing up for the 2020 election? Okay, there, there, there's an error in, in, the, in the way you pose that question. Consistency. You think that there's consistency. He came to office saying, I, these are useless wars. They were useless wars because somebody other than Donald Trump started them. But if Donald Trump starts it, then it's a, a useful war and his base will go with him. All right, enough, enough ranting. Here, here's, let, let me just come to recent reality. Last week, we saw an attempted coup 
in Venezuela. Um, and, and there are coups and there are coups. You know, and I know Venezuela reasonably well. And there's a country where probably half the population really do want the regime to go. They haven't got the means to do it. So here's this guy, Guaido. He says, all right, time to come out of the barracks. Did they come out of the barracks, the army? No. Mm. Now, you think they, if they can't organize a coup in Venezuela, which is just across the Caribbean from Florida, you tell me how they're going, going to organize any kind of coup in a country of 80 million people with a fighting army that is well-seasoned and well-tested, and they are almost geographically linked to Russia's sphere of influence. Russia and Iran get on. Russia and Venezuelan regime get on. This is not going to happen. And what Bolton is doing when he says this, aside from the fact that the U.S. Navy announced it was sending these, thing, these ships into area on maneuvers six weeks ago, he's just playing to the base. Yeah, playing to the base. And this is the, this is the point, isn't it? Uh, because he talked about escalatory indications or warnings without actually specifying what they are. I mean, what do you think he's talking about? I mean, flim-flam, I guess, on one level, but... Yeah, absolutely. It's very unclear what he meant. And uh, his whole tone seems um, very provocative. In fact, the whole statement actually seems just like a provocation, which is kind of uh, ironic, given that that's he's accusing the Iranians of some as yet unspecified uh, provocation of their own. Uh, it's also highly unusual for a national security advisor to make this kind of announcement. I mean, these kinds of big scale changes in deployment are quite common. Uh, but typically they might be announced by the Pentagon and they're probably, uh, you know, under planning for quite some time. Um, and so it does seem like it's just a lot of a lot of hot air. I mean, this is a man who's on record um, from from before this role uh, saying that um, that the only way to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons is to bomb them. Uh, so it's kind of in keeping, I think. But it's certainly a provocative statement. Mm. Provocative, yes. But Michael Iran has also said that America is putting things into place for accidents to happen. And that's the worry thing that um, an error could lead to something much greater. Yeah, th that's always the case. And, and, and one of the reasons that when I, I read about the Democrats thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't impeach or try and get rid of Trump. The, yes, I, I'm, I firmly believe he'll be thrown out of office next year when Americans get a chance to vote again. But Every day that we wake up on this planet with Donald Trump as president, there's a possibility of an accident happening. And that is something to be worried about. However, in this case, um, I'm so old that I can remember, uh, you know, when going back to the Reagan administration, when they wanted to bomb Iran, at the same time that they were rearming Iran in its war with Iraq. And the conduit for rearming Iran was Israel, which wants to bomb Iran. So it's an incredibly mm. complicated and almost ridiculous but, situation. But there's certainly an element there, from what Michael has said, of, of history repeating itself, this, this determination to bomb Iran because Iran is seen as a sponsor of international terrorism in the region. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a long-running um, long tension um, uh, you know, of, of course, the, the US and Iran have been kind of at loggerheads for decades. And it's a real shame that the kind of agreement that was reached um, under Obama with a lot of hard work and so diplomacy has been, has been pulled back from by the US, although it's worth noting that Iran and the other European partners to the deal are still mm. adhering to it. And I think that actually is an indication of why Iran probably wouldn't want to be provoking the US. You know, they don't want to uh, damage those relationships that they've worked hard to preserve with um, with the other European signatories to that deal.
Okay, well, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Samira Shackle and Michael Goldfarb. And coming up next, 13 people have been killed and dozens of others injured after Taliban fighters launch an attack on a police station in northern Afghanistan. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. Still with me are my guests Samira Shackle and Michael Goldfarb. Now at least 13 people have been killed and dozens wounded after Taliban fighters attacked a police headquarters in northern Afghanistan over the weekend. A suicide bomber driving a Humvee loaded with explosives began the assault in the city of Pulikumri. Clashes between gunmen and security services followed. Well, the attack came days after the Taliban rejected a ceasefire offered by the country's government and backed by the United States. And Samira, Afghanistan is one of those those subjects which it flits in and out of the western media news radar but we should never forget that it is still a long way from a settled peace and that the ongoing volatility has wide implications for the region and beyond yeah absolutely um in fact last year 2018 was the was the worst year for civilian casualties since records began um, of that type in Afghanistan. So uh, I think there are around 4,000 civilians killed and a further 7,000 injured. So it's kind of it, it's certainly at the moment getting worse not better in the in the context of recent history and um, the Taliban also control uh, more land than they have at any point uh, since 2001. So uh, it's not um, it's it's not a kind of good picture on the ground, and I think the kind of confusing thing that can be when it does enter the uh, Western media, it's either stories like this, which are reports of casualties, attacks on um, Afghan forces, or um, or whatever it is. Um, or it's talk about the peace talks in Qatar, which uh, the US and Afghanistan are holding peace talks. Uh, sorry, the US and the Taliban are holding peace talks. Uh, the Afghan government's been shut out of them. But those kind of two things running concurrently. On the one hand, uh, we get a, a little drip that uh, peace is on the horizon. On the other hand, these uh, casualties are really ramping up and up. Uh, and I think that can be um, that can probably be quite confusing. Mm. And the interesting thing as well, just picking up from something that uh, was, was said just now, Michael, is that this this is a group, the Taliban, that has had its its fair share of setbacks over the years, but their military capacity appears not have been diminished. Well, in, this is look, they are fighting on a home match every week, and clearly their supply lines have not been cut off. We know that you know. In fact, Samira probably knows better than I. You know the degree to which. The situation doesn't really change much from year to year in that people go over the border into Pakistan, they come back the other way, they know the mountains, there's been a drawdown of, of American troops and uh, 
coalition forces, as we call them. And it seems as if the idea is to try to protect the capital, Kabul, as much as possible. And what happens in the rest of the country is what happens in the rest of the country. Is that true, Samira? Uh, I think that I think to an extent, although actually there's been a real ramping up of attacks by the Taliban in in Kabul as well, and so you've seen a lot of uh, kind of foreigners, including those working for big organisations, leaving um, and no longer being based there. So I think it's kind of worsening across the board. But certainly, um, as in in many unstable and difficult to govern places, there is a focus on keeping the keeping Kabul safe. I think. Um, yeah, mm. and what I found interesting as well, just reading about this, is is Pakistan's own internal assessment because it says that Afghanistan could slide into a civil war, so it's it's held back from that for the moment. I mean, very briefly, is Pakistan right in that assessment, and what's it going to do for the country, given that it's got something like two point five million registered and unregistered Afghan refugees living in the country? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a very, very, very intimately connected Pakistan and Afghanistan. But I think the Pakistani state doesn't speak with a single voice on this. So they, uh, on the one hand, the civilian government might express concerns about the impact of the of a of a renewed civil war in Afghanistan, which would undoubtedly have a huge impact. On the other, uh, elements of the security forces are funding the Taliban, and that's one of the things that's allowed them to keep going. So that's the kind of long-standing contradiction of Pakistani Afghan policy. Mm. Okay, let's move on now to our final subject because the Sultan of Brunei has backed down on. Pl- plans to enforce laws that would have punished adultery in gay sex with stoning to death. On Sunday, he extended a moratorium on the death penalty to cover the new legislation. Well, the Sultan's U-turn follows a global outcry over the laws, which included protests by A-list celebrities Sir Elton John and George Clooney, who called for a boycott of luxury hotels owned by Brunei. Although the death penalty is still on the statute books for certain crimes, no executions have been carried out in Brunei since 1957. And, Michael, I guess that there's something rather ironic about these laws because they were all part of a general phasing in given that the sultan's family had a reputation for being pretty wild in terms of its lifestyle particularly his brother yeah i i I was surprised when one never hears about brunei much except when they pay for some stars to go out and celebrate somebody's birthday (laughs) um in some insanely huge palace so i was surprised to hear this and and because you know I tend to pay attention to Syria rather than Brunei. I mean, perhaps there's some political dynamic that led him to do this, that um, to keep more conservative elements in his Muslim population happy. He says, oh, okay, well, well, we'll we'll stone them to death. We'll stone homosexuals to death. And then he gets the other side of it, which is a global backlash against a country that's, you know, trying to be part of the global conversation and perhaps a place where people go to visit. So I don't know, without knowing the political dynamics that led to him doing this, or it could have just been he woke up one morning because, you know, people forget that the we live in the 21st century, but there are genuinely absolute monarchs. Mm. And whether it's Mohammed bin Salman as the crown prince, but who has executive authority in the, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, or, or the Sultan of Brunei, these are people who really have no 
no checks on them. Yeah. And if they wake up one morning feeling we're going to do something, they do it. And, and, and let's, let's pick up on that, uh, Samira, because there, there, there was one train of thought I'd heard about this uh, quite some time ago that they said that um, whoever was commenting said, well, look, you know, the Sultan is getting old. He's in his 70s and perhaps he's thinking about his legacy and his mortality. So what better way to actually um, address those issues by coming up with laws which are actually extraordinarily draconian? Mm, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to know... Um, what his the kind of psychology behind it was or what the what the reasons were but i think it it certainly seems that he didn't anticipate the level of international backlash um it's quite notable i think that the statement saying they're not going to be imposing this law um he released it also in english so obviously got the international community in mind um i know there were calls among uh, from human rights watch and others that if the law was in, uh, was enforced to uh, personally sanction the sultan and his family which i'm sure would have had an effect too but um it, before we finish off i think it's worth noting as well that the law hasn't been repealed you know they've said they won't enforce it but mm. the law's still on so the statute they books they could always re- they could and always in, enforce in it in some particularly in the, in the context of an absolute monarchy i mean there's absolutely no safeguards against that happening yeah and i guess the other absurdity as well is that if you're going to level an accusation of adultery against somebody you've literally got to catch them in the act if it's just had any, <laughs> had any substance not that I'm in the habit of breaking into people's <laughs> bedrooms but we'll leave it there because that brings us to the end of today's show Samira Shackle and Michael Goldfarb thank you both for joining us here at Midori House and today's show was produced by Tom Hall it was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Julia Webster and our studio manager was David Stevens more music next and at 1900 hours it is the Monica Culture Show with Robert Bound and we'll have more on the day main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, that is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. Goodbye.